Little knowledge is a dangerous thing. You read a few lines, you're ready to blow up the world, chop heads off, destroy authority. I know. I've been through it all. Now what do you want to do? I want to burn. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. And this time we are doing uh, kind of a something we maybe set a precedent for when we did Jurassic World. Although, actually, no, this is this is actually even more kind of in our wheelhouse. It's a remake of a previous film that we've covered, and that's Fahrenheit 451, which is the HBO Films adaptation. And, of course, every time we talk about Ray Bradbury, we have Phil Nichols on from the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies, better known now as Dr. Phil Nichols, because in the intervening times between when we covered Fahrenheit 451 earlier, he has completed his PhD. So congratulations, Phil. Thank you. Yes, Dr. Phil. It makes me sound yes. a little bit famous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And welcome. Thanks Thanks again so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's, it's always good to be here. This is one of my favorite shows. Thank you. Excellent. All right. We like to hear that. Um, so for this episode, you know, since we've previously covered Fahrenheit 451, the book, and the Truffaut film, um, we don't really have to dwell so much on that. I think that'll come up as we kind of discuss what what the adaptation is like. Um, let's just focus on the new film and and talk about, you know, what we thought of it. Um, and I think it's probably best just to go around and talk about general impressions of the film uh, for each of us. And Phil, since you're our guest, why don't you go ahead and go first? Well, thank you. Um, I, I, I've got two reactions to it. I've got my sort of initial gut reaction when I first saw the film, which, to be honest, was one of relief because I was afraid that it was going to be so terrible that I would have to go and hide for a few <laughs> years. Um, but it, it, it's not so terrible. Um, and then there's my sort of more considered reaction as I've thought about it over a period of time and been able to think about where it sits in relation to uh, previous Bradbury adaptations. Um, my initial reaction, as I say, was relief. Um, but I, there were a few flaws with the film that irritated me a bit. And then as mm. I thought about it over time, those flaws were the things that be began to nag at me. Um, sure. We can go into the detail of that uh, as we go through, I'm sure, because each one of you is going to have their own different take on it. But on the whole, yes. I'm I'm okay with it. I think it's an okay film, and it's an okay adaptation of Fahrenheit 451. But I do mm. know that the, the reviews um, on Rotten Tomatoes make it seem as if it's the worst film ever made. It's got really bad <laughs> ratings on there. And okay, it's got flaws. But it's nowhere near as bad as people are saying it is. I'm a bit, I'm a bit shocked by the negativity right. r relating to it. I should have looked up what the uh, difference was between it and A Sound of Thunder. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the benchmark. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about you, uh, James? You you watched it while you were on vacation, right? I did. Yep, I watched it uh, actually on HBO while, uh, while I was in Arizona. I wasn't on vacation, by the way. I was, oh, that's right. You, quote, you I was quote unquote working, right? <laughs> to the extent that you're ever working. Uh, but yeah, I was able to. I was able to actually watch it on HBO, so that was kind of cool. Um, it did suck not being able to pause it <laughs> right. a few times because there was yep. a few times where I wanted to pause it and think, "I'm like, wait a minute, this didn't actually happen in the book or the other movie, right?" And then like Emily was there with me, and she, she was like kind of confused about sometimes about what was going on a little bit. So I kind of, I kind of think I agree with Phil on that. On his take, is it's, it's it's an okay movie. Actually, I thought it was a pretty decent movie and an okay adaptation of the of the book. Hmm. And I was a bit I was a bit skeptical as well with the trailer and how they were going to go with it. I wasn't too sure. Um, right. But I, I kind of did a little bit of digging into it as to why they decided to do the movie again. Mm -hmm. And I read a little bit about what, why the director wanted to do it. And I, I guess I could see I kind of agree with what he's trying to say, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth, it's worth saying now and nowadays. So, yeah. All right. And what about you, Colin? I, I was in the room with you. So I, I, I know in broad strokes what your opinion is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
it's, I think what Phil said is, is pretty much accurate. You know, it has the core of Fahrenheit 451. Uh, I felt like it kind of missed the heart of Fahrenheit 451 and mm-hmm. kind of leveraged it for a different purpose, um, which I'll be happy to talk about later on when we talk about things in, in, in broader terms. Uh, I also want to take a second to address the, the question of Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, apparently this new adaptation is six times better okay. oh. than A Sound of Thunder <laughs> with a 6% <laughs> approval rating uh, from 2005 and a 32% for the new Fahrenheit 451. Uh-huh. So there are worse ones. Yeah. So uh- – you know, much as I like to be the the voice of dissent and and rah rah, like the movie better than Colin, um, and I probably do. Um, I I kind of have to side with all you guys. Where where I'm like, oh, you know, it was okay. Um, I guess I enjoyed myself watching it for the most part. I did find it had some serious pacing issues. I, I have a lot of issues with the film. I like a lot of the things that they did in terms of uh, bringing the story into a more modern context, but there's a lot of story mm-hmm. decisions that I feel like are half-baked. Like they were good ideas, but not developed well enough. And so that's that's the stuff that I want to get into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think I have a feeling I'm going to agree, agree with a lot of those because I I think I'm seeing where you're going yeah. with this. Well, because for <laughs> me, I, I... And we didn't watch, we didn't watch it together, by the way. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, going into this, I actually wrote down some some ideas of kind of what do I want to see when when I know it's going to be an adaptation that's brought into a more modern context, right? It has to account for things mm-hmm. like electronic media and ebooks and that and that kind of thing. And I was looking for a little bit more on that. They d- they did some things, and I want to talk about the nine, you know, um, where uh, I'm not sure if I can talk about much of this without getting into spoilers. Um, so maybe this is the time where we just tell people, you know, if you want to watch the film completely unspoiled, go ahead and check it out. It's on, you know, you can watch it on HBO Go or HBO Now. Yeah, go ahead and do that and then come back to us. So why don't we go ahead and then get into spoilers and talk about whatever we want to talk about. Um, so, Phil, was there something that you wanted to cover? Um, I, I think that the general idea of what they're trying to do with the film, which is to update it, um, one of the... Um, sort of frequent criticisms well no it's not a criticism one of the frequent objections to the idea of adapting fahrenheit 451 again was well it doesn't mean very much because if you burn books which is what it's all about of course if you burn books in the modern age that's not a problem because you can get the book electronically you can find it in the cloud right. somewhere so um inevitably if you're making a film based on fahrenheit 451 today you've got to take that into account and somehow explain it um, now, I quite like the things that the director of the film, Ramin Barani, was saying before the film came out about um, the changes he was making and the reasons for them. And one of them was mm-hmm. this very issue uh, that that books don't have that sort of specialness in terms of being information repositories anymore. So right. in order to bring the story forward... He instead has made it not just about books, but about really, I suppose we should call them analog media. What we see in the film is that the firemen also burn um, analog technology, video cameras, um, old TV monitors, hard drives. So anything that could be used to store or replicate information that isn't this nine thing that they keep referring to. So... um, now, I think that's an okay idea, but I think ultimately what that leads to in the adaptation is you lose the – one of you, I can't remember who it was, possibly James, just a minute ago, said mentioned the heart of Fahrenheit 451. And the heart of Fahrenheit 451 is very much about books as a thing, as a, a, a thing you can hold, you can touch, you can smell, you can breathe – you can share the thoughts of people who are who are long dead, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's not just the information content; it is the physicality of the book. By the, by the end of the novel, um, Montag comes to the realization that the physical book is not important; it is the content that's important, mm-hmm. and that's why they're memorizing the book. But that's the epiphany that Montag comes to. For most of the story, the heart of the story is books, books, books. And I think what the film has done is brought in all these other information storage devices, which now have to be burnt as well. And then it's forgotten the special value that books have. 
And I think what that diminishes in in this new film is the role of the book people. Um, they don't seem particularly heroic or interesting. They're just a group of people sort of living on a farm somewhere who happen to be memorising books. But I don't know why they're memorising books anymore, because they've encoded everything into a pigeon. Right. There's <laughs> a, a very specific plot thread we need to come back to. <laughs> in fairness, I think it was a parakeet. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> Completely different ballgame. Yeah. So I, I, they've, they've taken some good steps forward in updating the story, and I quite like the, the mm-hmm. dystopian turn that they've given to everything, the, the way the government controls people with this. I've forgotten what that's called, that camera that spies on people. It had a, a funny Uxie. name. Yuxi. Yeah. Yuxi. Um, yeah. It's dystopian Alexa. Uh, well, yeah, that's right. right. But that is, that, <laughs> that is the first thing you think when you see that. You think, oh, that's a good extrapolation of where we are today. We, we've, yes. we've invited things like Alexa into our lives. But really what we've done is we've invited Big Brother into our lives. And that's what this Yuxi thing is. It's, it's Big Brother. So it's very 1984. But mm-hmm. I thought that was okay. I thought that was a, a, an interesting science fictional way of updating yeah. stuff that's consistent with the original story. It's just that where it then leads you to at the end of the story is where it sort of goes wrong, I think. Yeah, and I feel like some of the 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 notes of 1984 in there lead to one of the problems for me in that it seems a little muddled, this film, because it pulls some other classic dystopian ideas, right? Because even with, with 1984, and I know Colin hasn't, um, you haven't read it, right? That was one you, you missed right. in high school. The when when Montag is talking at the school with with the books and he holds them up and they all boo the books. That reminds me of the two minutes hate in nineteen eighty four. Yes. And I and I feel yes. like pulling from so many things like that just makes oh, it yeah. so it's not such a focused adaptation that that I might have liked to have seen. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I thought that ties in with what we I think we see it later in the film. We see the kind of social media reactions. Yes. So when somebody is presented as a as a villainous person, everybody clicks the dislike button, and of course right. that's what happens to Montag in the end. He becomes um, the figure right. of hate on the social media. So I thought mm-hmm. the the kind of two minutes hate or whatever it is that that booing of the books all tied in with that. I I, I was yeah. happy with that as a concept, and I quite okay. like the idea that um, Montag was teaching these kids because that echoes what Truffaut did back in 1966. He had um, Montag not just being a fireman, but also a teacher of future firemen. So whether that was a deliberate echo or not, I don't know, but I thought it was a nice idea. Yeah. What about you, Colin? Something you want to talk about? I want to touch on what Phil said about having eBooks and this idea about uh, why they're important now and what their risk is. Um, Beatty goes up and he says, you know, why... Why do you need to read an entire book? If you want to read all of Moby Dick, they have it here. Right. And what he shows on the screen is a series of words and emojis. And it's the entire story condensed to one screen film. Yes. <laughs> and that's I think that's one of the dangers of moving away from physical books is that you cannot necessarily control what happens to your copy of your book out in the cloud. Right. Yeah. Cue, cue Colin Rant number three on DRM. <laughs> <laughs> yes, call rant number three on DRM and yeah, non-faithful adaptations. DRM. What was number two? Redemption stories. But redemption stories. That's not really a. Rant. No, it's not. A that's rant. a passion. <laughs> that's also one of my complaints about the movie. There, there. I didn't feel like there was a good redemption arc for Montag. Oh, I, I think I disagree on that. Um, and we can, we can get back to that because that's one of the major changes. Uh, well, it involves one of the major changes from the book. Mm-hmm. That um, can I can I just say something about the the, con- yeah, go ahead, the condensed Moby Dick presented just as three icons or, or whatever it was. That mm-hmm. that actually is is an extension of something Bradbury writes about in the novel. He talks about um, or, or or the character of Beatty talks about classics cut to fit. So he's talking about things like Reader's Digest editions of novels, um, right. radio adaptations, TV adaptations. So anything where you take um, a sort of a, a, a large work of art and you compress it and condense it for the popular taste. So um, I, I think that kind of emoji rendition of Moby Dick, that's, that's really exactly what Bradbury was talking about. But it's taking it to the extreme. And I, I was quite yeah. happy with that. I, in fact, it gave me a little chuckle when I 
I, I like the emojis <laughs> they chose. It was just very good. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed that. I thought that was a good kind of adaptation of, you know, the the DRM taken to its extreme, right? Where we can yeah. control what you're going to going to actually consume. And, and it kind of fits with the modernization of the story, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think they did a, at least a fairly decent job of incorporating all the social media and making it seem, if not present, at least a little bit in the future of how connected yeah. everybody was and how seemingly brainwashed people were. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I had in, in kind of the things, the thoughts that I had put down where I want to see how the movie addresses this, you know, the electronic media, the internet, you know, that's what I wanted to, to see. How are they going to deal with that? And I feel like it's, it's kind of hit or miss there because I think the, the stripping down of the internet to basically just the social media platform that they call the nine, which I have a theory about why it's called the nine, but I'm curious if anybody has any actual knowledge on that, but we'll get back to it. <laughs> I thought that part of it was good. But then the other part where they come in and they raid the, you know, graffiti, which I thought it was interesting that they call all media that's illicit graffiti. Um, they come in and they find the big computer system that's uploading books onto the dark nine, you know, that right. part I felt like was really underdeveloped because they that didn't seem like it was a threat because they just they came out and they burned the hard drives and stuff but they didn't burn the dark nine yeah right so I felt like that was untapped potential that they they could have expanded on yeah and and it either uh, reflects a kind of a naivety about how the internet works um, or we're, we're supposed to assume that this future nine whatever it is is different from the the internet that we have currently because we know at the moment the internet is built entirely around redundancy that if right. you cut off one part of the internet the data is still circulating around somewhere else so right. um taking out one server in one location is not going to kill um mass storage of, of information a lot of it is right. distributed across the web right. now maybe this maybe this nine is not distributed but nobody ever says that in the film so i right. assume therefore that the nine is just the internet but tamed by some form of government and yeah. there's something else i need to say about government later by the way so remind okay me. <laughs> my thinking was you know as a computer guy you know it, when you come in and discover that you can use that to trace where it's going right and mm-hmm. and so the people the people that were there would have trashed that thing before Montag showed up, if possible, right? They would have flushed the stash, yeah, because that's right. evidence that they can follow. But I think it may be that uh, the firemen are just so computer illiterate that yeah, they they wouldn't know what to do. I think it's funny how they always go for the monitor. <laughs> yes, every time they do this in any movie that involves destroying a computer, they go for the monitor. Yep. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that always cracks me up. <laughs> yeah, and probably and probably given the technology level of the time, I mean, wasting time on hidden in the monitor in the first place is going to let gigabytes of data go away already. Exactly. It's not terabytes. Yeah. Who knows what their bandwidth capabilities are there? Right. So one thing that I want to talk about is about, I, f- I feel like the characters are not terribly well served in this film um, because I wanted to know from, from listening to the interview with Bradbury at the end of the audiobook that he read. Um, I know that when he adapted Fahrenheit 451 for the stage, he added a lot more backstory to Beatty and I had hoped that we would get some of that here. And mm. we do get some hints that Beatty's a complex character because he, he has that weird poetic streak where, right. where he goes and puts Yuxi on in dark mode, you know, and then puts the lamp cover over it because he doesn't trust it even mm-hmm. then. Yeah. And then he writes his little, you know, one liners and then burns them. I, and I feel like they wanted to, they wanted to have him be somehow suspicious of, of the government because he expresses that, right. That the, the uh, ministry doesn't give us enough information. So like he, he's, I felt like he was starting to move away from, fanatical distrust of the government i mean sorry trust of the government um and and had this urge to create and so he he did that and then he burned it and because he knew that the consequences of doing something like that would be bad Mm -hmm. um but i don't i'm not sure that really squares with where his character ends up at the end of the film yeah oh i I think it Um, does i think it squares just because he doesn't want to get caught or you know sold out or whatever right he's he's not he's not ready to make that that leap to be to, to being what Montag did of actually protecting right. uh, people who want to preserve the books. To me, to me it's, he seemed more like kind of like a drug addict 
where he's from time to time mm. getting his poetic fix, and then he's ready to keep going with his normal day, and then he goes back and gets his fix, and then keeps going again and again and again and again. Hmm. I, th- I think he's gotten to the point where he can survive where he's at, and it just it's going to get worse and worse and worse probably, and eventually he might have cracked. Yeah, it's a risk every time he yeah. does it. Right? But I don't think he wasn't, you know, it's just like like a drug. He wasn't ready to get rid of it yet or go either either way, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like you can make an argument that, that the kind of character arcs have – uh, of of him and Montag have kind of a equal and opposite thing going on toward the end, and I do want to talk about that. But um, I want to let Colin get in here to talk about Beatty. Uh, well, to talk about any, we were talking about the characters, and I know that you have a particular opinion about where they went wrong <laughs> on characters. And coming back to the heart of the thing, yeah. So one of the characters I missed was Mildred. Yes, because in the book, Mildred kind of shows you who the average person is in that society. Oh, yeah. Um, she commits suicide, and the next day. She's awake and hungry and eating toast and coffee and complaining that she doesn't have enough televisions in the house. Yeah. And uh, her relationships are completely built around the consumption and sharing of media. Mm -hmm. There are no hobbies. There are no – there's no thoughtfulness. There's no caring about people. uh, There's no consequences uh, for her own actions or lack of action. Yeah. And so I, I, you kind of get little glimpses of that with, you know, the students being indoctrinated and, but yeah, you know, and, and maybe the VR cafe, you know, all these people in a cafe where you're supposed to go out and interact with people and they're all completely isolated mm-hmm. from one another. Right. Yeah. I, I think the, the adaptation of the parlor walls doesn't necessarily work anymore. Right. Because we already have immersive media. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we have VR, we have, and VR is kind of the most obvious way to do that, um, rather than the parlor wall. So I, I liked that bit of adaptation there too, where, where, where Clarice is standing there in the middle of that. I think it was more of a bar. Um, and everybody else is completely disconnected. They're not interacting with each other unless it's, you know, in some kind of virtual. Unless it's to get a beer. Yeah. <laughs> right. But <laughs> yes, it, it, it seems, that seems more, uh, in, in keeping with the world that we know today. So I, I it, yes. it sort of chimed with that for me, but um, what it doesn't do is get to um, I, the the Mildred of the book because we're very focused on her as an individual um, in in her re- reaction to the parlor walls, and then later her peer group when we see her friends come around for a house party. Um, mm-hmm. It, it mm-hmm. sort of personalizes that technology rather than treating yes. it as a mass technology. So I think that that aspect of it is missing. And I I, I did an interview on another podcast a couple of weeks ago. And um, I, I, when I was asked a, a similar question about Mildred being missing from this, this version of the story, I said that at the time of watching, I wasn't bothered by her absence because most of her story function seems to have been transferred over to Montag. Yes. But this is one of those things where when I've reflected on it and and on how this new version compares to previous versions and how it compares to the novel, I realise there's some some nuance of personality that has been lost by leaving Mildred out of it. It's almost as if they're they're saying, well, she's not important enough to the story, so we'll take her out. But then we've lost mm-hmm. some some of the um, some of the nuance, some of the finesse uh, of the story and of the characterization of Montag, because we lose Montag's principal relationship by taking her away. Now yes. he, he's not in the novel; he's not deeply in love with Millie. He, he's perplexed by her more than anything else. But it gives him something to be worried about, and without that, he's only got himself to be worried about, and he doesn't seem to be particularly worried about himself. Right. So I'm 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 not on the grander scheme of things I don't think it's a good idea to have taken Millie away. But at the time of watching you know you go with the flow you don't you don't feel that there must be a character missing from this scene mm-hmm. or anything like that. Yeah, I think I I feel like in the novel kind of Montag's interaction with Clarice and his wife um kind of show him that he's not happy, that he's right. unhappy in some way. Yes, and that's something that's right. that that is a revelation to him that oh that's right. I'm I'm not happy. And that's that feeds into, okay, well, then it makes sense. It squares that he's been secretly hoarding books because he has yes. some kind of deep seated unhappiness. Yeah. And they mean something to him. But he doesn't know what yet. Right. So Phil, going back to what you said about the that the 
physical books not not being as important. I did like that a couple of the pivotal scenes actually were in places with large numbers of books. And yes. um, I think even Colin appreciated this as well. Um, when they went to uh, the woman's house who was reading uh, The Grapes of Wrath, and there were all those books. Mm-hmm. And I liked the fact that there was dialogue that was lifted directly from Fahrenheit 451 about the yeah. – um, you know, don't give them two sides to an argument. Give them one. Better yet, none. I, I've always loved that that line yeah. in the book. Yeah. Uh, that, that's terrific. That that's the the scene. It's really when um, Beatty and Montag go upstairs to see the woman's collection of books, and then they yes. discuss individual book titles. So yeah, that that is really very closely drawn from the novel. But there was there was a nice little twist um, in some of the information that was given there when Beatty picks up um, is it Huckleberry Finn? Um, yes. And he says this is one that was banned because um, I, I, the blacks didn't like it or something like right. that. And then he picks mm-hmm. up an, uh, another one which and I, again I've forgotten what the book was but it was a book by a black writer and it was right. oh and then we we have to burn this for some other reason. I can't yeah, remember the what the reasons like were. That's it, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Now, of course, Montag in this version is black. Right. And for me, what was a really nice moment in the film is that he sort of gives this blank reaction. He's he's totally oblivious to black history. And it, it, that's really just a, um, a reminder that all these characters are totally oblivious to their, their own history. And that's right. straight out of the novel. That's Bradbury's novel uh, to a T. The, mm-hmm. the, the characters have no memory. They have no sense of past. And Montag can't even remember where he met his wife for the first time. Right. You know, he struggles to recall. They all have this struggle with, of recall in the novel. And to yeah. an extent also in, in the Truffaut film in the 1960s. So that scene, Beatty and Montag in the old woman's library, beautiful. thought that was one of the best scenes in the film. Yeah, yeah I, I particularly like the imagery of her with the books taped around her. <laughs> oh, uh, I hate like a suicide that. bomber. <laughs> this idea that she's going to carry knowledge with her, and that it's an extremely dangerous thing in that format. <laughs> I, I'm afraid I laughed out loud in that scene, um, and I'm and I'm not sure not sure that we're supposed to, um, because you know the the ridiculousness of strapping books to yourself as if they're going to blow up. It's, I just thought that was not <laughs> Right. It, I mean, that could subtle. have been I, – I feel like that the woman was old enough that she could have remembered the time before the current regime. And so yeah. she knew what that was a symbol of. But I don't think that the, you know, the audience on the Nine would realize right. that that was reminiscent of yeah, Suicide yeah. Bombers. I think that might have been yeah, for us. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I do think the, the scene with that woman is – um, nowhere near as good as the scene in the novel and nowhere as good as the scene in the Truffaut film. Um, mm-hmm. the, if you remember in, in the novel, um, that the firemen have, have sprayed the kerosene on the books. They're all ready to mm-hmm. burn them. Um, all they need to do is get the woman out of the way and then they can do their job. Um, but then she, um, holds something up in the air. And in the novel, it's a single, a, a paragraph made up of a single sentence. Uh, and I can't remember, remember the exact words, but it's something like a single match. And mm. the, when you look at the text on the page, the way Bradbury has presented it on the page, you're drawn to this focal point of the match and mm. what that represents. And of course, it represents danger because if she lights that match, it's mm-hmm. all going to go up before the firemen have got time to escape and they panic. They all rush out of the house in panic and the house goes up in this big conflagration. Mm-hmm. But in this, in this new film version, that doesn't really happen. And no. instead she, she says this mystery word that we're supposed to, um, latch onto and remember for later on in the film. And I, I just think that's, that blows the scene entirely. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to, so. There's some logic to it um, because mm-hmm. the idea of social media blowing up about that word. Yeah. And not, not even social media. It said it was on the dark nine that, that people were, were talking about that. But let's, let's go ahead and talk about ominous, <laughs> the ominous. If we have to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like this is uh, – it's a plot that might have worked if this was a television series, like a 10-episode television series. Yes. Because then they could have made it seem less ridiculous. <laughs> yes. But the the way it's implemented, I, I'm, I'm kind of like, well, I mean, why plants have DNA? Why not just plant it in all the trees? <laughs> um, 
Yeah. I and, and why does it have to go to Canada to be spread around? Because Canada is free, of course. Yeah. Yes. And I particularly liked the dislogic of, well, let's tie a tracking beacon to the birds so the people in Canada can find it. But none of our drones with lasers and guns will never, ever find it, especially if it's one of our own tracking no. beacons. There's a reason that it's a bird. That, that, that Did they, they use an the avian flu strain? Ominous into. <laughs> no. So that the bird can fly away through the top right, of the roof. That's, right. the, that's the reason. It's contingent on that moment in the film. And that's not how you write things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, okay. It is the way the story plays out. But if all had gone to plan and the firemen hadn't shown up, presumably they would have just taken the bird out into a field and released it. And you yes. would still have had the, the same symbolism of the flock of birds spinning mm -hmm. around in the sky. So yeah. it's, it doesn't all hinge on that ability that it has to be able to fly up through a hole in the roof. No, but um, I mean, in the particular implementation here, I think that's the yeah. reason that they made it a bird. Yes, as opposed to a sloth or a, or <laughs> yeah. a badger or something. <laughs> or, or a rabbit, you know? Yeah, or a cockroach. You want, you want quick update? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you want something. Oh, to, yeah. Or bacteria. <laughs> Put it in a bacterium because exactly. they reproduce like crazy. So, yeah. Um, it, it, I, yeah. I've got a copy of an earlier draft of the script for the film. And in the earlier draft, um, it wasn't Omnis. It was, I believe, Codex. Uh, mm. Now That makes more sense. That, that has a, a meaning in and of itself. Right, of that's course. a type of book, I mean, an early type of book. Indeed, indeed. Okay, now... Oh, that would have been cool. For some, for some viewers, it, it might be just as mysterious a word as omnis, mm -hmm. but for some viewers, it would be something that had a, a, a level of meaning. Even when you don't know what she means by saying that word, yeah. it has some level of meaning. And... and for me, Codex is um, makes me think of the um, oh, what's it called? The Rosetta Stone, the or, or the Mayan Codex. Mm. You're talking about things that let you translate from one language to another, some, something that is a key to an understanding. And so, Codex that would be great, but no, it's Omnis. It's this unfortunately, I unless I'm remembering incorrectly, I believe that was the term they used for the genetic codes that were the MacGuffin in Man of Steel. And so that may have been why oh, they changed it. Right. So somebody's got there before them. Is that what you mean? That somebody's used that term before? Yeah. They they call it the genetics ah, codex. Right. I just looked it up. So I think that's probably why that change was made. But I agree, it would have been a better yeah term to use because it's you could yeah. you could excuse it that people not in the know wouldn't know that it was that it meant anything, and others might mm. might say, oh, well, that's just she said an arcane <laughs> word for book. Yes, and so some people would would get it, and some people wouldn't. But I don't know why she has to say anything at all. I, why doesn't she just strike the match and burn her books? That makes her a martyr, right? Um, and and having her say a mysterious word totally deflects from what it is she's doing at that point. Yeah, one one thing that I enjoyed in the in the adaptation was then it flashed to a news report about the woman burning herself, and it said. Uh, that the lady lived in the woods without Uxie, like a wild animal. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was funny. Um, and I liked that, you know, they still had the um, conversation about Master, is it Ridley or Ripley? I can never remember. I've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, I should know. Master Ridley. Um, Ridley. Ridley. Yeah, where, where when Beatty is describing what that was about, he he couches it in terms of they were being put to death for worshiping a different book or for, for um, praying to a different book. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the concept of Omnis takes it, takes the whole idea from she is, she's refusing to be separated from her books to it's okay to be separated from my books because there is something greater and better that's coming along. And so I don't have to worry about preserving these yeah. things anymore. Yeah. 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 I think you're right, but, so what? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't think that's a, exactly not, not a good right. concept. I don't think. Yeah. All right. So, so what did we think of Clarice? <laughs> Nobody wants to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought about this last night because I wanted to be prepared for our talk today. You know, in the book, Clarice is—I think she's the voice of the author and the narrator. She tells Montag things about yes. himself that he doesn't know. Things like, "You're not really mm -hmm. in love with anybody." And you're not really happy. Are you really happy in your job? How did you become a fireman? All these questions that that he does not tend to ask himself and that maybe as a reader, we would not think of without being led in that direction right. by a narration. Yeah. 
And in the in the movie, she's something completely different. Yes. Now, I, I feel like the adaptation of Clarice here is somewhat consistent with the Truffaut film, where Clarice and Faber are kind of the same person. Yes. And I in this one in particular, I did feel the absence of a Faber character. But character consolidation is a thing, so I don't really have a problem with it. I thought, you know, their chemistry was good. And I guess I would say in terms of trying to get back to something positive here, the performances are all decent. They're they're not amazing. Um can I give you my take on on Clarice? Yes, please. I, I think I think um it would be very difficult to do a film today with Clarice as she is written in the book. Yes. Um I don't know if you're familiar with this this concept of the manic pixie dream girl. Is that something you've ever heard? Yeah, of? definitely. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got um, the TV tropes webpage in front of me, which is a nice <laughs> definition. Manic, oh. Manic Pixie Dream Girl is a character who exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. Now that doesn't one hundred percent describe Clarice in the book. No, but it's. It's got some elements mm-hmm. of what Clarice is. And the danger is if you took Clarice as she is defined in the book and tried to put that into a modern film, I think it might end up with a manic pixie dream girl. Yes. So I can see why filmmakers would steer away from that. Um, and then you've got a choice of, okay, if you're not going to do that, what are you going to do with Clarice? Um, are you going to make her older, make her a teacher, make her a leader? Um, Truffaut made her into a teacher, made her a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, this new film makes her a bit older, makes her not a teacher, but something of a leader, something of a, a link between the normal world and this sort of underground world. Right. Um, there was another version of Fahrenheit 451 that was written uh, about 10 or 15 years ago and was never made. It was written by Frank Ooh. Darabont Ooh. of Shawshank Redemption yeah. fame. Ooh, and wow. he decided to make Clarice into, uh, I think it was an eight-year-old girl. Hmm. So now I, I never heard his explanation for this, but when you read his script, you really see that what he's realized is that Clarice has to have this supreme innocence yes. so that she could ask these innocent questions. But if you do anything else with her in terms of her being an adult, then you kind of get people expecting some kind of uh, romantic relationship or something else. You expect some form of relationship there. And I think what Darabont seems to have recognized in his adaptation is that's not at all important. Mm. You don't really need that with the Clarice character. You just need the pure innocence. So he made her as innocent as possible by making her about eight years old. Yeah. Um, so now if we, if we had that film and we were watching that film, we would probably criticize that. We would say, Oh, that's not the Clarice <laughs> we know. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a logical, dramatic solution yeah. to the problem. Um, and I think f- the, the disappointment with this new film is that the Clarice we have there doesn't have any of that magical bit. She ha- she's the link to the underground, just as Julie Christie was in the, the Truffaut version. But she doesn't have any of the, the sort of the magical um, elements that we expect Clarice to have. And she doesn't ask um, right. the kind of are you happy questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's probably the most disappointing character. But again, when you're watching the film, you're not particularly thinking of that. And unless, like <laughs> us, we all know the novel and we're obsessing right. over yeah. it. Yeah. I think the average viewer <laughs> is just going to take it as it comes. And the Clarice character works as as drawn in this film. It's just not the Clarice that we know from the book. Right? I don't think she was as convincing in this film as she was in the book or the previous Truffaut movie. Like I, I feel like in the book, mm, in the yeah, in the agree. in the book at least, you know, Clarice forces Montag to. Like you said, like we all said earlier, I guess, analyze his life and realize that he's missing something. I didn't find her convincing at all in that way in this movie. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. even naming her Clarice might have been a mistake. I think she should have just been Faber because she drops the knowledge on him right. you know, about uh-huh, yeah. the that we demanded a society like this. We demanded kind of the the withdrawal mm-hmm. of, of art. And she, she served and, the same, and, I guess, purpose yeah. as he did, or she did um, in the book, so... What the heck? Yeah. Why not just make it that character instead? Because <laughs> it's really all she all yeah. she was was the link to the 
under underground, right? Yeah. 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 So one thing that and we, we can't avoid talking about is the eye drops, which I get the impression. James, have you seen Equilibrium? Yes. Okay. They, they reminded me of the drug in Equilibrium, you know, keeping people on an even right. keel. Uh-huh. Um, because Yuxi was, you know, like, yeah, you seem a little off. I'll, I'll redoctor right, right, your, uh-huh. your dosage, you know. Um, but it seemed like there was a connection between him not doing the drops and, and him starting to remember his father. And this goes back, Phil, uh, to what you said earlier about no one having mm-hmm. kind of a, a sense of history or their personal history. Yeah. And yes. I feel like there's a lot of wasted potential there where that that whole sequence of him remembering that his father was a firefighter that was a, a rebel mm-hmm. and was essentially put to death by Beatty, to me, that sets up the perfect pretext for that moment when he decides to burn Beatty. And then the movie doesn't go there. And, right. and so I'm confused what we what that was driving. Yeah, I was not happy with that ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I think I think you're right. It, it is setting him up for that. But I, I, I imagine that what we're supposed to see when he doesn't do that to Beatty, we're supposed to see that he is a superior character okay. who has not fa- not fallen for that temptation. Right. I, I would like to think that that's what that is. But um, why not? In the book, that's a very again a very central mm-hmm. scene of setting fire mm-hmm. to, to Beatty. Yeah. Um, and in the Truffaut film, that's yeah. another mm-hmm. sort of classic scene. So it's a missed opportunity. Well, I think the memory also sets him up to convert, right? Also, or convert, I don't know. Start believing in the in the power of books and things because his dad did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel like I, I don't mind that he didn't kill Beatty with the flamethrower because I feel like the way it's executed, if you take away the flashbacks and stuff, mm-hmm. um, because I felt like those were only leading him towards killing Beatty. And since he didn't, I would rather have those go away. And then that moment is kind of like you said, Phil, where it's proving that he's not going to be like Beatty. And then that comes around full circle at yeah. the very end when Beatty burns Montag. So you have these these two men who yeah. are in some sense questioning the government and the ministry because you have Beatty doing his little poetry mm-hmm. things. And, and they come sort of full circle at the end where Montag has decided this is something worth dying for and Beatty has decided this is something worth killing for. And I like that yes. from a narrative perspective. I just feel like all the extra bits in there <laughs> with the with the drops and with the the memory flashes undercut a lot of that and and made it less effective. I, I think I would agree with with that assessment. I think that's that's spot on. Really, the uh, I mean the the only thing to say about the eye drops is that they are the equivalent of the drugs mm-hmm. that everybody yes. takes in that the makes novel. Sense. And in in the novel, we have the overdose scene of Mildred. Um, So take away Mildred, you haven't got that activity being shown anymore. So presumably you want to show it some other way. So I I, I can see the logic of how they got there. Why eye drops as opposed to popping pills? I don't know. Maybe they just thought that was um, a different thing. But I think that's just a detail. Um, but I think your your assessment of all of that is is spot on, and I think you're absolutely right. Take out the flashbacks, um, and the story as it is makes sense without mm-hmm. them. So why why not take them out? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny too because it's not like this is a bloated film. It, you know, it's a hundred mm. minutes long, and it feels longer. Honestly, I, do you, yeah. you guys agree? Well, <laughs> I think you mentioned already there was parts where it just kind of slows, and then comes back up, and then like the pacing was off, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I felt about the movie. Yeah, yeah, I can I can tell you that it got it was rated Z by my son, because um, <laughs> we were watching it the other night. I, I wanted to rewatch it, and we got to about a half hour from the end, and it was like nine forty five. And my son's like, "How mm. much is left?" And <laughs> said, it's like a half hour. We'll finish it tomorrow night. And he went, "No, no, we won't." <laughs> can I throw in um, one other facet that I don't think we've we've touched on yet? And, yes, absolutely. There's a, a kind of a, a generation gap uh, in the film. We sit, there's a scene earlier on. I don't know if you noticed, Keir Dulay, the, um, the star of 2001, A Space Odyssey, is in this film in a very brief scene. Yes. Um, and so he, he, he's obviously an older person, um, and he's seen... Uh, he's shown in a scene where they're uh, recording something onto an old video mm. camera and onto uh, on a TV screen. Um, so... There, there's an older person who is kind of uh, arrested or, or 
taken in by the authorities. We see the old woman reading her books, uh, saving her, protecting her books. Um, and for me, there seemed to be a, a strong impression that it's the older generation who are clinging to these old media, these old yes. ways. And the younger people are quite happy with the social media. Mm-hmm. Now that, to an extent, that's an extrapolation of our, of our real, real world, I suppose. But I think that is, is another facet that makes, makes it obvious that the filmmakers don't care so much about books mm. um, because it's it's almost dismissing these older media um, as being something that only old people are interested in. They've got some vague, vague memory mm-hmm. of something that they liked in the past and they're clinging to it, but it, it's of no longer of importance mm-hmm. uh, in today's world. Um, and I didn't think that was a very good theme for this particular story mm-hmm. and I was a bit disappointed that that was in there. Maybe I'm over-reading something into it. I don't know. I don't know if anybody else caught that. Yeah, I didn't think of it in those terms. I didn't. Um, but I, I can definitely see that. And and Beatty even says, you know, once your generation dies out, you know, so will your, your memories, essentially. Yes, yes, yes. Colin, any uh, other thoughts? Well, uh, I responded to a tweet from someone yesterday who was talking about uh, Hamilton and about how Hamilton portrayed all of our founding fathers as being people of color, where our founding father, fathers were really all white. Mm-hmm. And so I've been thinking a lot about ethnicity. And it occurred to me, you know, Michael B. Jordan is black. Um, Sophia Butella is from the Middle East. Beatty, who is the fire chief, and he's kind of the authoritarian figure, mm-hmm. he's white. The lieutenant kind of a guy is white. Uh, I was wondering if if there was a decision for casting that kind of made the people who are being persecuted and controlled by society to have them be people of ethnicity because in our society, hmm. we recognize that that happens. Yeah. I'd be curious if you looked at the background, what, wherever they showed the eels, you know, which was, they, they used for their kind of refugees and, and unpersons, which is another mm-hmm. 1984 um, reference, deleting someone's yes. identity. I'm, I would be curious what the kind of ethnic, the demographic would be there of those, those shots. But I feel like Montag, you know, his name is Guy, right? It's 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 like the most generic name possible, and, and so he's supposed to be an everyman, right? And so so then casting him as a person of color, I think is a, is an interesting um, adaptation, right? To to say that well, the the demographic demographics have shifted, um, you know, since the book was written. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. Um, we've we've got to be careful. Yeah. We've got to be careful, though. I I remember seeing a comment on Facebook um, a couple of weeks ago where someone was saying, why is Michael B. Jordan playing this part? Montag is white. And uh, I don't remember anywhere in the book that it says Montag is white. Um, Now, obviously, we might imagine that Montag is white because it's written by a white American writer um, for a kind of a white middle-class audience in the 1950s. Um, So, yeah, it's very easy to picture a, a mm. white person in that, but there's no reason why Montag should be white or black. Um, no, not at all. And I, I'm I'm very happy with the casting of Michael B. Jordan. I think he's he was terrific in yeah. this role, given given what he was given to do. Um, and I think they've then, um, what's the word? They've capitalised on that with the scene that we right. talked about earlier, where Beatty gives gives the explanation mm-hmm. of history. So I I I liked what they did there. Um, in terms of the sort of the background casting, I suppose what we have to remember is that Montag is part of the system. Right. So he beca- okay, he becomes an underground figure, but he doesn't start out that way. He starts out, he is part of the system. So the system seems to not care whether people are black or white. Um, and if you look at the, um, the book people that we see, I think we see a fairly mixed bunch there. Yes. I, I distinctly remember there's, there's somebody who's, um, embodying Tony Morrison, um, <laughs> but there were some some other some white people in there as well. Mm. So it was it was you know it, was, it it didn't strike me as being uh, biased one way or the other. But right. It it is interesting. It's those sort of background details really that that flavour a film. So it'd be worth looking at, at that again. I've only seen the film once mm. so far, by the way. I was hoping to watch it a second time before we spoke today, but I haven't had time to do that. Um, so I, I desperately want to go back and study it. Mm. I uh, w- One kind of um, 
bit of social media, something that I saw, and I can't remember, Phil, if you posted this or I saw it somewhere where Jimmy Kimmel did one of his, you know, talk to people on the street. And all, all he wanted people to do was name a book, <laughs> any book. And, and oh, it was yes. a shocking yes. number of people that he found that could not name a single solitary book. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> One of them, uh, one of them named the Lion King. <laughs> <laughs> that classic. Wow, yeah. that was um, Herman Melville, wasn't it? I think. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of goes back to I think what Phil mentioned in the first place is like, why are we making this movie? It's not terribly applicable to society now because nobody holds books as dear as they did used to, and it doesn't mean as much as it used to to us. Well, yeah, but but I would say that it fits with that theme of, you know, what Faber says in the book, yeah. right? It, it wasn't that they took the books away from us. It's that we stopped reading them. Right. And and then when yes. they took them away, we didn't even care. Yeah. 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 And I think that 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 notion is is present in this film, but I, it yeah, doesn't I think so. it doesn't figure in the the kind of the the resolution mm -hmm. of the story. And that's the thing that's disappointing for me. I I, I mentioned earlier that in the book Montag comes to the conclusion that the physical book isn't important. It's the content right. of the mm -hmm. book. And, and that's, that's his epiphany. And that's what allows him to transcend himself yeah. and then help, um, bring us through the apocalypse that is coming at the end of the novel. Mm -hmm. Now, in this film, there is no apocalypse. There is no nuclear war. Just as in Truffaut's film, there is no nuclear war. There's no threat of it either. And in, um, Bradbury's stage play, which was written in the 1980s, again, I don't think there's any nuclear war there either. Um, and this is one of the, the problems with the story. If you take away that big threat um, and that idea that civilization is going to end and we need to carry something forward to the, the phoenix from the ashes uh, that follows, if you take that away from it, there's not really much of a story left. It's really a, about some people who don't like books and some people who do like books. And the ones who do like books want to memorize them for mm -hmm. some reason. You know, it's, it, it, the, the big themes of the, the story really disappear if you take away that big threat of the loss of civilization. Um, so, so this, this new version is, is not alone in doing that. But it, again, it leads you to this kind of so what. Of an mm -hmm. ending, and I I have a feeling that that's why this film has an ending which is nothing to do with Bradbury's ending. Mm -hmm. This has got the people memorizing the books, but so what? That's not important. What's important is the pigeon, right? The pigeon with the <laughs> DNA. And so it's a totally different story, and I really feel sorry for anybody who comes to this film uh, who's never read the book before, and they watch this and they think, oh great. Great stuff with the pigeons. <laughs> and then they go and they get the book out of the library and they're skimming through it looking for the pigeon. And it's right. And they'll they'll think the novel is rubbish because there's no reference to this blooming pigeon. So. Well, and then you contrast that with my son who read the book and has been disappointed that no one has adapted the mechanical hound yet. Oh yeah. Right. Oh yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that's a really dangerous thing to, to adapt. I can imagine somebody doing that on a low budget. Oh, and yeah. And it would look like a sound of thunder. It would, it would yeah, be yeah. really primitive. Yeah. You know? There's a Black Mirror episode where there's kind of little doggies um, that oh, really? hunt people down. Oh, yeah. Um, Phil, you had said that there was something you wanted to say about government. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, when you read Fahrenheit 451, the novel... Where do you think it is, and where? What do you think the extent is of the the, the government, the authorities? Mm. Do you have an answer for that, <laughs> Colin? Why don't you take this one? I was well, no, you know, <laughs> boy, I kind of get trapped growing up in you know Oregon, and so I assume that the book was set in a North American government kind of block, almost like a Philip K. Dick description. Mm. Um, and there yeah. must be another government because we're at war with them. Um, and so yes. it's not this complete worldwide thing. And, and to bring in one other thing, you know, if, if we're supposed to send the pigeon to Canada, if you really care about <laughs> books, why aren't we just escaping over the border? Yes. Well, people were trying to escape over the border. Yeah. And so, so where, where did you want to go with that, Phil? Well, uh, the point is that the novel is, is not specific about where we are. I think right. the closest we, we get to it is, um, when uh, Montag finally remembers where he met his wife, there, I mm. think there is some reference to Chicago. 
So that okay. seems to pin it as being um, USA, North America, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right that there are at least two factions in a war because the book ends with a war. Um, now, if uh, oh, and we also know that uh, in the novel, the firemen believe that their fire service was started by Benjamin, by Benjamin Franklin, Franklin, yeah, who of course right. is is an American um, figure. So it's definitely an American uh, setting, and there's more than one faction in the world. What we don't know is whether the book burners are just American or whether they're somewhere else as well. Right, but in the film. I, I very much get the impression this is all taking place in a future United States of America. They talk about the um, – I don't know whether they actually say the second civil war, but they talk mm-hmm. about the, 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 the latest civil war as if they've had more than one. Right. So it very much feels that it's set in the USA, but that just over the border, things are different. And therefore, it doesn't feel like it's a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um and therefore, why don't we just w- wait, I don't know, five years, ten years for this government to die out and some other government to come in and replace it? Yes. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem anywhere near um, – doesn't seem anywhere global enough um, to to warrant the idea that if these people don't memorize books, then we're in trouble. Because it seems to me the people in Canada can – can keep all the books they want. <laughs> yes. So books are, are not even under threat. And yep. presume that nobody mentioned the United Kingdom, but I'm assuming that the UK is still okay right. uh, in this future, and we'll still have our books as well. So No, the Americans have collected all the books and brought them to the US. <laughs> <laughs> and then burned them. Right. Taking all the books from <laughs> yeah. the world. You know, I, I when I watch a movie, I, I take notes to help me remember things that stick out. And it mentions that they're in Cleveland, Ohio. Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yep. Even though it's, it was filmed in Toronto, <laughs> I believe. Right. That makes sense. That's why everyone wants to go to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there was something else that talked about. It was, you know, your happiness is being protected by the firemen. Yes. It's not your well-being. It's not the future of society. It's not freedom. It's your happiness. And it, it reminded me just – I know this is kind of out of the blue, but it reminded me of that song by Pharrell Williams. Oh, yeah. Which says, happiness yes, is like yes. a room without a roof. Right, and yeah. if that's your, if that's really your definition of happiness, I, I think you need to go re-examine it. <laughs> oh, but Colin, right at the end, the roof of the barn right. is broken open, so it's without a roof and the bird flies through it. Ah, <laughs> oh, you are right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so do you, do you want to know my theory? Actually, I want to know, does anybody else know what the nine means? No, I've been waiting all through this podcast for you to okay. tell us. <laughs> so my, my theory is it's, it's, it's the internet turned on its head or turned, you know. Okay. With a slant to it. Oh. And, and in order to visualize that, then what you do is you write down www in curly letters, not in, not in triangular ones, and then you rotate it to the left so that what you have is 333 and you add it up and that's nine. All right. Oh. So there you are. That's that's my uh, bit of numerology for today. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Was it worth the wait? Great. <laughs> I'm so glad we waited all that time yes, for definitely. that explanation. Absolutely worth the wait. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Um, can I can I go back to um, the discussion about Beatty? Yes, please. That, um, you spoke earlier about the the way the character is developed from the book, um, and you mentioned Bradbury's own attempt to do that in a stage play. I I quite like the way the changes they've made to Beatty in this version of it. He's very much a kind of a a father figure in some ways to Montag. Mm-hmm. It's very much a sense of if you follow in my footsteps, you'll be just like me right. one day, um, which should be uh, should feel Montag fill should, sorry it should fill Montag um, with great hope and expectation. But it, in the end, it makes him full of dread mm-hmm. that he might turn into something like that. But what I really loved was th- those private moments that Beatty had. They went nowhere in terms of story, but Beatty alone in his own uh, apartment. Um, turns off uh, the Yuxi thing, puts a cover over it because he knows that turning it, turning it off doesn't really turn it off. Mm-hmm. And then he sits there and he writes these little aphorisms on um, what I assume, are, they're like cigarette papers. Yeah, they're rolling papers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's writing these things out and it's, 
is kind of puzzling over what these things mean. That, that's my reading of it, that he's, mm-hmm. he's got these expressions, these little poetic turns of phrase, and he's sort of puzzling over where did that come from? What does that mean? Um, and in the end, of course, he burns them or he destroys them. I think he burns them. Maybe he burns them. Um, he does. Now, yeah, and, and that struck me. That's a, that's a very Bradbury um, idea. Um, in one of the, again, versions that were never made, there was a version of Fahrenheit 451 that Bradbury wrote the screenplay for, which was never made, of course. <laughs> and uh, in that version, um, Montag not only steals books, but he collects little fragments of text. So when they mm-hmm. burn a book, um, a little tiny piece of a page might survive with, with a word on it. And um, Montag would be intrigued by these, and he sort of tucked them into his glove and kept them. And there's a scene oh, later in cool. the film where he's at home, and he opens a drawer, and there's all these little fragments of text, mm. which is a, a, a lovely idea. Yeah. Um, and they've, they've used something very similar here for Beatty, and I, I really like this idea that Beatty knows that there is something to these texts, but he's really struggling to see what it is. Mm-hmm. He's not, it's not that he is necessarily a book lover as, um, Bradbury's Beatty might be. He's, there seems to be hints that Bradbury's Beatty has this secret stash of books. Mm-hmm. Um, and he certainly read a lot of books in his time. Mm-hmm. But this Beatty in this film seems to be struggling. It's as if he wants to see what the value of text is, but he can't quite get there. And it's, that's kind of a tragic side to his character, I thought. I thought it was really nice. Hmm. You know, in the, in the story 451, there are three people that we know, actually maybe more than three people, that we know have read books. And hmm. they all end up becoming... Uh, almost crazed or manic. Like my interpretation of Beatty in the book is that he actually commits suicide by fireman because uh, he has all these things in his head and can't deal with them anymore. And Montag goes from being kind of your average Joe fireman to reading a book and then starts doing all these crazy things like holding a poetry reading for his wife's uh, wall watching group and trying to uh, incriminate other firemen and have their houses burnt. And then there's Faber, who is hiding and collecting all this technology and making technology, but too afraid to do anything about it. And from a certain twisted point of view, they they are the crazy people in society, and they have been the most exposed to books than anybody. Yes. Well, any final thoughts from anybody else? Uh, no, not from me. No. Doesn't sound like it, does it? The one last thing that I would say is that I, I'm, I'm going to make it my life's mission now to find out what happened to Millie. Because she was in the original screenplay oh. that was written for this film. She was cast. Hmm. Um, I can even tell you who was going to play the part. Laura Harrier, I think it was. Um, she was cast for the part. And there, online, there is a very brief interview where she says something about, oh, parts get cut occasionally. And unfortunately, it's happened to me on this occasion. Hmm. But what I don't know is whether, did they shoot the scenes with Mildred and cut them out for time? Or did they cut them out of the script and never film them? Hmm. But it's very unusual to get to the point of casting somebody for right. a role and then um, cut them out. Yeah. It, that, that's, that's very odd to me. So I, I'm trying to find out what really happened there. But, of course, filmmakers don't like talking about things like this. <laughs> yeah. So we might have to wait for it. I'm hoping for a DVD release and some um, some uh, missing scenes yeah. turning up on a DVD. But I, I don't know if that will ever happen. That would be interesting to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm assuming we're going to get to a position in the moment where we're going to rank this in relation to other versions, are we? Oh, I hadn't thought of doing it, but uh, sure. Ah. It is our MO, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I want to hear where you rank them, actually, before I give mine. Oh, boy. Um, I mean, I'll go first, and hey, Colin, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a minute to think. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, the book is still an obvious number one. Um, you know, I liked it better than the Truffaut yeah. film when we watched that. Um, I did rewatch the Truffaut film. I don't know. In some ways, I think I have more problems with with the new one, but I like that it had some aspirations. And so I think I would put it in second place and then the Truffaut film. Right. Okay. So more more credit for intent than for execution. Ah, uh, yeah. So I think I would give the Truffaut film more credit for execution than intent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I think I like the the book than the Truffaut <laughs> film than this one. I, I guess yeah, I wasn't wasn't happy with overall with the way that they they executed it and tried to 
modernize it, I suppose. Yeah. What about you, Colin? Well, you know, true to form, I think I'm going to agree with James. The, the book does, or the newest movie does take some risks and it makes some changes and, and it's, it's, um, it's hindered by things I never even considered. Like, uh, you know, the, 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 no, oh, what's, what's the name of the stereotypical character they mentioned, Phil? Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Manic Pixie yeah. Dream Girl. Yes. Yeah. I never yeah. considered that you couldn't cast that kind of a person as a character any longer. Right. Yeah. Mm. It's too much of a trope. Right. Yeah. 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 But still, I'm going to go, you know, book, Truffaut, HBO. Right. As you should. Right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, Phil. <laughs> what about you? Yeah. I'm a bit torn, really. I, I, I do think book first, Truffaut second and this HBO one in third place. But I've got a, a caveat for that. And that is, if I want to introduce people to Bradbury, I think I might show them the new HBO one rather than the Truffaut. Because I think the Truffaut one is a very peculiar <laughs> film. And for some people, it's difficult to get into because it looks strange, it sounds strange, the people are talking with funny voices, a lot of it is badly dubbed. Mm, right. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. I think there's, there, there's, a barrier for, there's a barrier for entry for people getting into that film. I can see that. Um, I've, I've, screened, I've screened it for audiences publicly, and although people say they like it, um, I, I also recognise that people have trouble mm-hmm. with it. Now, they might have trouble with this one as well, but I think this one, it, it looks like a modern film. Right. Um, and I don't think it's that bad a modern film. So I think it, this is, is more showable to people. Yeah. So in term, in terms of what I would go back to again, um, book first place, Truffaut second place, this version in third place. But in terms of what I would recommend people look at, um, I would recommend the book to them mm-hmm. first. But of the films, I think I would right. probably direct people to this one, first of all, because it introduces the themes and the characters and the yep. setting. And then when they've watched it, then you can say, now go and read the book <laughs> and see what yeah, it could yeah. have been. All right. Well, I think we're about wrapped. Phil, I want to thank you again, of course, for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. Yes, it's very fun. Thank you, Phil. You're welcome. It's awesome. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it for a, for a long while on this one. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to go do more, more yeah. Bradbury. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty there. There's plenty there to yeah. look at. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and sign us out. Um, I think with with Fahrenheit four five one, it's it's more than usually appropriate appropriate to do the classic sign off, which we don't usually do. So, everybody, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. Um, Phil, where can people contact you? Um, they can go to my website, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. Okay. Awesome. And so, everybody, thanks for listening. And until next time, we'll leave you with the classic Pavement Pounders blessing. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the book, the classic, of course, (laughs) paper, physical book, always fall open to where you left off. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Sorry, I'm a little distracted. My dog just puked. Yummy. Oh. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) I I was thinking, uh, instead of uh, uploading this file, I thought I might encode it into a pigeon and send it to you. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> Why didn't we have that? I'm glad recorded? I'm still recording the Skype call because I'm putting that in the blooper reel. <laughs> <laughs>